Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky. Very excited to be joined by a former colleague here on the Late Night Happy Hour from the uh, ESPN. What was the name of that site? Uh, ESPN LA. ESPN LA. Okay. I couldn't remember if it had like a real name. Uh, John Weissman. You Didn't last long enough for that. Yeah. You, you know him from the... Uh, sad uh from the dodger thoughts blog and of course two great books about the dodgers 100 things fans should know and do before they die um <laughs> brothers in arms kofax kershaw <laughs> and the dodgers uh extraordinary pitching tradition yeah it does take on a different meaning in 2020 it's a little more macabre like we don't mean literally it just you know well no all right i remember when i got you know they gave me that title that was assigned to me because it's part of the series. And I remember yep. telling my grandmother, who was about 98, <laughs> I'm writing this book. And she's like, oh, what's it called? And I was like, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, you know, she took it in stride and she uh, read it and then lived another three years. So it was all right. Yeah. Like, did, did she take it as like a gauntlet thrown down? Like, okay, okay grandson, I'll show you all these different things like a knockout. They, uh, I guess when you get to that point, you've pretty much met all comers. So uh, you're over it all. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when you, when you get to that age, they, they, you really just start developing this, you know, it's, it's a combination of like YOLO and also just like, 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 nothing impresses them at that age because they've seen Absolutely. everything and no, nothing scares them. Yeah. No, I mean, it's amazing to be, to actually be, have a life where you've like gone. Yeah, I'm good. I currently have an aunt who's um, in her mid to late nineties and she's uh, pretty much the same way. Um, she's just like, I've, I'm, I've done it. <laughs> you know, it's incredible. I am not expecting to be that kind of person. <laughs> Still going, what the hell did I do? But like, when you're talking about somebody, that, this aunt of yours with the perspective in her 90s, you know, late 90s, is there is there any element of, oh, I've seen it all, but not quite this, <laughs> like what we're going through right now? Or is it really like, no, I can find, I can find a template. I can find a comparison point. I think... Uh, I mean, it's a, no, the answer is not like this, but you're sort of, it's going to come one way. Can you hear my kids rumbling upstairs through this? Yes, thing? that's all right. It's okay. Uh, and they should be asleep, but. Bedtime was actually supposed to be 10 o'clock. But um, okay. all your children, John. Well, the one you're hearing is 12. He's the youngest. They're 12, 16, and 18. Oh, the 16-year-old and 18-year-old have every right to be up right now. So that, yeah, that's. No. Your parenting's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, I, I, but I saw like I saw like it was a couple days ago. I think it was like Roberta McCain died. She was 108 years old. I remember reading. I think it was either last year or the year before. This woman in Italy, who's I think the oldest woman in the world, she was 100 and 118, 120. I was thinking to myself, like. Not to be hyperbolic, but is there a hundred-year period? She was born in like 1890, whatever it was. Is there a hundred-year period where a person's life 
you know, you could take a hundred years and a person could see as much as they saw in the hundred years between like 1895 and, you know, you know, or 2005, whatever it is, like 19, you know, like that kind of stretch of time, 1905, 2005, that hundred years where you maybe, you know, you were a teenager before you saw a car to like the internet and jet travel and all these other things. And like, that must be extraordinary. I mean, that. I, I'm, I, I'm not as good at history, Brian, as you are. And I, I'm willing to bet John is, but if I'm doing the dates right in my head, somebody who went from say like the found, you know, like revolutionary war through the civil war with John Tyler's grandkids. You, you I, I, oh, I, I remember that vaguely, story. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of them just died this uh, this past week. John Tyler, the president, who was born in 1790, <laughs> 230 years ago, had a grandchild die this week, and one is still alive. Wow! It was like they they all of the 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 men had kids like really late in their lives yeah. or something like that. The math on it, but but like if you die if you were born in 1308. And you lived until 1408. Shit was exactly the same as it was when you were born. Like nothing was different in that hundred years. You said I mean, it was it was the same. Um, but I, I find stuff like that to be completely fascinating. Um, I don't know if that's highly relevant necessarily, but it's interesting to me. It may be as relevant as I get. Yeah. Um so you you were uh, you were engaged last night in uh, or this morning I should say John I think in some uh, Twitter battles with people who were, were writing off the Dodgers and were very upset that you I, I think somebody was even very disappointed that you even invoked the name of the 1981 Dodgers who I believe were the last team to come back from a, a two nothing deficit and they beat the Yankees that year um, how dare you sir invoke the name of that team. Uh, in some sense, optimism. Like he said, "Shame." <laughs> um, that was a you know. I've, uh, we go back the same era. Uh, I mean, I started on Twitter in 2009 when I joined the Times, um, and I think you guys were already on there, probably. And every time the Dodgers, unfortunately, so many times have gotten eliminated. Uh, at the end of October, at some point in October over the past eight years, it's brutal on Twitter. And you, you sort of know it's going to be brutal. There's a whole mess of uh, hard feelings. I mean, if you recall, uh, they were not on Twitter, but they were burning Kershaw's jersey and effigy last year after he gave up the home run. So it's brutal. And you sort of. <laughs> I, we, we both worked for a long time with Elsie Granderson, who, to his credit, has gone on to apologize to Clayton Kershaw's face over this. But when he was leaving the parking lot uh, from one of those Dodger losses, there was a, a Kershaw jersey burning, and he purposely ran over it because he was just so mad about it. And, and LZ, to his credit, was like, all right, that, that was just crossing the line. And he he actually sought out Kershaw to apologize because he, he had, like, made a video of it happening. And I, th I think, like, the next morning he woke up and he's like, oh, my God, like, who the yeah. hell are you? So yesterday, that was a day, game two of a seven-game series, and middle of game two. I mean, I know they, it, at one point it was 7 nothing, and, you know, the game actually wasn't, in fact, over, but 
it looked really bad. But when it was two nothing in the middle of the fourth or fifth inning, the world was falling apart. And I, being more optimistic about the Dodgers than I am about anything in my personal life at all. <laughs> it's a really weird idea that I'm this great optimist when really it's only confined to this one area. I point out that in 1981, that's right, and I know it's 40 years ago, that the Dodgers had two, two zero deficits that they overcame in the playoffs, not to mention two to one against the Expos. I pointed this out and I made a, I don't know. An enemy. <laughs> it existed in 1981. I'm sure all you Tommy Lasorda, I, this isn't what I said, but it's basically like Twitter would be nuts if, if, and people were pissed. <laughs> they were not having it. And I got really called, I got, I got some of the worst call, name calling I've ever gotten. And it was amazing because I wasn't, all I was saying was it's not over. I wasn't saying they were going to win. I don't know if they're going to win. They make, they baseball to me is a game of failure. Baseball is pain. I mean, when you become a baseball fan, literally from the moment you start playing and you know, you're hoping to get three out of 10, everyone knows that whole cliche, but as you become a fan and you root for a team, whether it's the Yankees, Dodgers or pirates, angels, Marlins, whatever teams that struggle to get there you are asking for failure and no one wants it, but you have to at least understand that it's, even if you win a title, it's going to be part of the process. You are not escaping it. It is not, I mean, the Lakers in my glory days as a fan could win, could go through the playoffs and lose one game to Allen Iverson and then, but otherwise sweep it. Um, baseball, that is not baseball. And the idea that I can make a remark that, hey, this the series isn't over, and that not only – you disagree, sure. Be depressed, sure, but get hostile. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, so why why is that, though? Because, you know, in theory, that, like that's the attitude you would think fans would want. They would have – it's like – you know, you, Laker fans spent the entire next day basically – bitching about all the people who said that they weren't going to win and how they got no respect and like how people were not optimistic enough about, uh, about the team and their chances, you know, so like to hear a, a, you know, a kind of a trusted voice in the Dodger world be like, guys, we can still do this. Why were people so angry? Do you think? Well, number one, I'm not a trusted voice because I'm the guy that says, don't give up every year and they lose. So I'm <laughs> the opposite of a trusted. Plus, you know, you, you once worked for the team, John. So that means you don't have, you don't have a type of objective voice. You're, you're still part of the machine. You're still their lackey. I'm sure, I'm sure you hear things like that. I do hear that. My, actually, my favorite moment was I once tweeted something nice about the Rockies and I got accused of being a Rockies honk. And I just thought, <laughs> <laughs> Someone just swooped right in and was just like, there you go again with Colorado. Oh, I mean, we get, by the way, I mean, we get accused all the time of, you know, you got you guys work for the Lakers. Of course you're going to say this. We keep having to tell people, not only do we not work for the Lakers, we've never worked for the Lakers. There have been times, quite frankly, where the Lakers don't like us yeah, at all. And, and sure we 
part of the predicament we're in now is because <laughs> the Lakers didn't necessarily always love our work. Yes. My response to that was stop losing 60 games a year and it will be easier for me to say nice things about you. But that but, wasn't their line of thinking. But we also, though, because there was this period where Laker fans were convinced that all these different media members were on Steve Ballmer's payroll and that they were getting checks from Ballmer to say great things about the Clippers. And Brian and I got lumped into that. And all we were saying was like, where the hell's our checks? I mean, like, like, I mean, we're saying what we're going to say no matter what. And I mean, we don't even talk about the Clippers that much, but either way, where's my damn check? Like I, I, it, it kind of pisses me off that if the, if Steve Ballmer is doing this underhanded thing, and for the record, I don't think he is, but if he is, it actually pisses me off that he doesn't think enough of me and Brian that he even attempted to bribe us. Are we not influential enough? What's like, the problem? I'm way more insulted at the idea of not getting the bribe offer than getting it. <laughs> you are getting at a much larger insidious um, issue with the American public and the media, which, you know is a third rail that I doesn't really fit in with the idea of the late night happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, but you had a question before, which was, um, well, which was why, why are they so hostile? And I will say my theory is honest, is that people feel, Oh, um, I don't think it works that way. I think a lot of you know, a lot of it is sincere. I really want, you know, anyone under the age of 30 has never experienced this. They say this often to me on Twitter. I've never had a World Series in my lifetime or in my conscious life as a fan. I want to experience it one time. And, you know, life's short. And I get that completely. Um, but there's another level it goes to, which is like, they owe me this because I've been a fan. They owe me this. And I'm sorry, life doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. I wish it did. But tell that to a Cubs fan. My dad grew up in Chicago, and he, he was in his 80s before. Uh, well, he, I mean, they won their they went to the National League. They won the National League title when he was 10, and then that was it until he was 81. Um, Boston Red Sox. You know, I don't need to. I mean, this is stuff you guys all know. You're not owed. And you can't, and you're going to kill yourself thinking that you are. And you got to just, you're in it for the experience, the hope, the possibility. And yes, if it happens, the reward is going to be tremendous. But you, uh, I don't have, I don't have patience for baseball fans who don't, who cannot tolerate the valleys, no matter how long they go, because that's the game. So. It's, it, but you know, it's it's funny. Like you know, the Dodgers clearly in a, at least a, you know in a game and a half valley, um, and it, you know, and and it looks so bad because you know they roll through the the regular season. You know, short as it is, uh, you make whatever caveats you want that they didn't get the chance to really play. I, I was shocked when I saw that. I heard the same stat everybody else did. They only played thirteen ga- thirteen games against teams with winning records of the sixty. Um, but you know, they, they were very good in the first two rounds of the playoffs. It's not like they, you know, suddenly, you know, it was, it looked fluky or anything and now they can't hit. I, I, I mean, as cliche as it sounded, I was at least, I, you left game two going, they've got to at least feel good that they finally scored a run. Like if they lose that game, whatever the final was eight, it was eight to seven, right? If they lose eight to two, 
I don't know if they win today. Like I, I, I think that has a lot to do with it that they finally saw runs on the board in the final three game, three innings of game two. Well, they're first of all, they're they're very responsible for the fact that they played only t- so few teams with winning records. I mean, they beat pretty much everyone they played. So if you take them out of the equation, the number of teams with winning records goes up. The Giants have a winning record. I'm pretty sure the Diamondbacks would have a winning record. The Angels would be damn close. So anyway, putting that aside, um, good point. Facing two pitchers who have been on huge rolls. Um, they did, didn't do a lot. They made them throw pitches, but they didn't do a lot of damage. Um, I <laughs> knew the story was <laughs> from granted LA. <laughs> We've been through the fat Andrew Jones, Dodger years. We've had the valleys. <laughs> Technically speaking, is fat years. Andrew Jones based on the shape? Is that a peak or a valley? That should be months, not years. <laughs> <laughs> He's, st- am I correct? He's still getting paid. Uh, I, I he had a up. he had a Bonilla deal. Uh, well, I mean, not not as long as Bonilla. Not originally, not originally, but when they released him, I think maybe they restructured it like that. Yeah, like he might still be getting paid. But um, uh, where were we? Uh, talk, oh, talking about last night and and the Dodgers. Um, and the whole story of Atlanta going into the playoffs was they have two starters on a roll. They have a third who who started today's game, Kyle Wright, who had a good uh, couple weeks. And then they were worried about playing seven games in seven days and how and the depth of their staff facing the Dodgers. The minute the playoffs – this was every preview story about this NLCS covered the fact that Atlanta was very top-heavy, had a good closer, you know, had good late relief, but nothing in the middle. And over the t- length of the series, they'd be in trouble. Minute the first pitch is thrown, everyone's forgotten that. Max Fried shuts them down. Uh, they lose late. Uh, Ian Anderson, who was a number three overall pick, I mean, not not a scrub like the cliche that everyone the Dodgers always struggle against rookie pitchers. This was guy was a number three overall pick in 2016. Had a sub two ERA, I think, this year, and a zero ERA in the postseason. He shuts them down for five innings or whatever it was, series is over. But what happened to all that stuff we discussed about that doesn't matter anymore. The Dodgers are too smug. I got, that was one coming up. They're too smug to win this, to beat Atlanta. They're too, they're hopeless. They always do this. The logic being because they lost the series in 2013, they're going to lose it in 2020. I mean, like all this stuff, dying, people dying to come up with explanations for why the Dodgers will fail. They will fail. Not that they might fail. Not that the odds are now against them. They will fail. And that's, you know, that's that's hard. That's the dominant uh, philosophy on Twitter. And you know, I, I think it may just be really the dominant philosophy in fandom too. It's, I mean, it's a giant defense mechanism where, you, like, if you if you convince yourself the bad thing is going to happen, you can prepare yourself for it, um, and you know, and 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 then be excited when the good thing happens. But if you're if you are allow yourself to be an optimist, if you allow yourself to believe that the good thing can happen, you're opening yourself up to the pain of 
of disappointment when it happens, which means, John, you must just be a very tortured soul at this point. You're 100% right about the defense mechanism, but I can tell you it, it is not effective because these people are still every bit as upset when they're eliminated and they're not more. And yeah, I'm disappointed too, but at least I had a good time along the way. <laughs> did, did, did they specify who was the smuggest of all these players that are getting in the way of uh, winning a championship? They did not specify. I think the implication was that it was top down from Andrew Friedman, but oh, I, it was an organizational disease. Okay, so it's like Smug Mountain, and it just all trickles down from the top of Smug Mountain. And Andrew Friedman's the one who planted that big flag that says Smug. He's like the, the of eye it. of Sauron at the top of the thing, just looking down on everyone. Um, yeah, and then you know, then I brought up the '81 team and. Uh, Things were toast, basically. That team wasn't smug, John. That's the difference. There was no smugness among any of the players on that team. Not a single hey, Garvey, one. Not, not a smug <laughs> No. Yeah. No, when I think of Garvey, I think very oh, good. Right. <laughs> <It's humble. laughs> really. <laughs> not in any way, not in any way, uh, personality traits that could be confused as smug or arrogant. I've, I've there, never gotten that from Garvey. Athlete? Not to get too off the rails here, is there an athlete that you guys can think of that leaned into their era more than Steve Garvey did the 80s? Like, it was just like, that guy was typecast for that moment. Perfect for it. I, I'm not, it's hard to say that there is. I mean, I, it's weird that when you ask that question, my, I, for some reason, I mainly try to think of like, who is the most disco player <laughs> The 1970s, because maybe that would be an answer. Like Clyde the Glide, Frazier. Yeah, yeah. Bake yeah. McBride. I, he he Bake feels McBride. he feels very much of his era. If nothing else, Oscar just aesthetically. Yeah, yeah. So, but Garvey, yeah. I mean, that's that's a definitional uh, ball player of the. Uh, of you know what? I was just about to say this guy, and then Danny Bronco mentioned it. Dennis Rodman in the 90s. Oh, that's, that's actually perfect. Yeah, I, wow. I, I think. Oh, yeah, no, that's that's pretty good, man. Um, he he very much was of that era, like just everything happening. He he felt just right in. Well, like Steve, there's no way Steve Garvey can be Steve Garvey in 2017. <laughs> like that, that would not work. Like in any way, shape, or form. I don't know. Yeah, no, he was. I mean, his timing was perfect, for sure. Um, okay, this, this is an interesting, because this is something that comes up a lot from uh, SoCal Dale. 81 Dodgers had Fireball Lasorda. We have Analytic Dave. Like, I mean, the, the game has obviously changed in the sense that, you know, pretty much all of these guys use analytics to some degree, and a lot of them have front offices. No, not even pretty much all of them. All of them. To sure, a, a I, I just degree. yes, I, I it's to varying degrees, but I, I guess it it varies in the sense of maybe how much you'll notice, or frankly, how much you hear about it. And you know, Andrew Friedman carries with him that reputation, so I think that's some of the reason that you hear about it that much in the first place. And you know, there's always the talk about. You know how much control Dave Roberts even has over the decisions being made, like you know how much autonomous control that he actually has, and well, that I, I feel for him. But I don't want to cut you off. But just I feel for Dave Roberts in the sense that he is either a puppet to the puppet masters doing all the analytics, 
or he's the guy that is the slave to the analytics through his own usage and can't get out of his own way with it. But the the analytics get sort of thrust upon Dave Roberts's persona. Well, I would first of all the idea that Dave is a slave to analytics is lunacy. Um, it is an organizational philosophy, and he's an open-minded guy, and he's an interest, a smart guy, and an interested guy, and he embraces it. But the, the idea that he's a slave to it is stupid. And the funny thing is, there's two points I want to make. One is the decisions he gets the most criticism for, in particular bullpen moves in the postseason, he goes against analytics almost every single time he makes one of those moves that everyone then rips him for. He putting in um, Kershaw, for example, last year, I know that's a new age move, but the analytics did not point to having Clayton Kershaw pitch to Anthony Rendon. You know, that, that was him going, this is my guy. Mm-hmm. You know, put him in. That's, that's not an analytics move. That's a Lasorda Lasorda is a guy. Lasorda would bring Don Sutton out of the, uh, you know, into games at the end. Lasorda put Oral Hershiser in the uh, in the NLCS. And as far as Lasorda goes, who's I mean a legend for so many different reasons, but Tommy Lasorda managed for 21 years and won two World Series titles. If you give Dave Roberts 21 years, and by the way, Lasorda won his first title in his fifth season. This is Dave Roberts' fifth season. So he won one in his fifth and in his 12th seasons and fell much farther shorter the other times. He got into a couple other World Series and then was basically done. 88, which everyone looks at as a fluke season, a magical one for sure. And all the credit in the world for Lasor- to Lasorda for making that, that team, making that work. 19 other seasons. Again, all pre-Twitter. <laughs> yeah, there's no way. There's no way Tommy lasts in in today's. But it's it's funny, like you know, baseball. You, you know, managers in baseball used to be like college basketball coaches. Like the, the the persona of a team was built much more around the pers- the personality of the manager than it than it ever is today. Like I, even diehard baseball fans, I bet would struggle to name that. You know. 15 managers in the major leagues right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I I don't follow the game nearly as closely as I used to, so I'm the wrong guy. But like I they all sound like people that you that that are made up that are the names of the guys that you get in the video game when you don't have the rights to get the real name. Oh my god, I'm thinking about it now. I'm not sure I can name five. <laughs> like I'm really who's thinking the manager about it. of the Do- who's the manager of the not the Dodgers? That you know. Who's the manager of the Braves? I have no idea. Nicker. Who? Snitker. Brian Snitker. No idea. Didn't Wait, have a clue. Who's the manager of the Padres? Do you know? Who's from last week? No. <laughs> Tingler. Yeah. There's another guy who's I was like, yeah, I was like, I don't know what a Jace Tingler is. I, I know now, but I didn't I didn't know I, why. I know that upset. I know Dusty Baker is the manager right. of the Astros. I know that, or at least I think I know Aaron Boone is the manager of the Yankees. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. see, in the era we grew up in, we're close to, I'm older, but you were close enough. Whitey Herzog and Sparky. Yes. Yes. You guys were 90 when they were 50, you know? I mean, they were, they were grizzled old managers, these Earl Weaver types. 
um, Billy Martin cycling through over and over again. They were kind of larger than life figures. I think in a way, Lasorda and maybe Jim Leland were kind of, kind of the last of that breathe. Dusty is kind of now the old guard. Um, yeah. It is a different because, and because of these organizations, they are going younger. Don Mattingly with the Marlins. Yes. Okay. I'm almost up to five. I'm almost up to five. <laughs> no, you know, it's funny, like I think to some degree, and maybe because I think he was on the front edge of it, he was always considered kind of a, a cutting edge, front edge sort of progressive thinker. Joe Madden is, I think, one of the closest things left to a guy who you sort of look at the the manager as the core cultural component of a team. You know, certainly I think when he was with the Cubs, that was that was the reality. And that's in part because Mike Trout is just for whatever reason not a person whose personality um and and kind of his thing doesn't really break through. So there is room in 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 with them they were terrible this year to be, you know, to have the manager be the guy who um who people know but like that that guy just doesn't exist in baseball anymore. And and so to I think you know to compare Dave to Tommy doesn't even make sense. Like it's, well, it's like comparing Garvey to, you know, Mookie Betts. I mean, it's not, it's, we're, there's two different eras at play. I mean, there's two, there's, there's different sensibilities and everything. Um, Dave Roberts is a tremendous clubhouse guy, which is a more or less what you want out of Lasorda. I mean, Lasorda is more, he's going to, he's going to be the guy that names Oral Hershey's a bulldog and tell, and gives him, you know, basically, threatens him with his life if he doesn't get the next guy out. That's not going to be Roberts, but Roberts is going to be able to nurture. It's You cannot be calling it a coincidence that so many players either come up out of the system and do well under Roberts or come from other organizations. I'm not giving him all the credit by any means. They have an incredible development system, but like people are thriving under Dave Roberts. And, you know, someday, whether it's 2020 or 2025 or whatever, if there is no World Series title, yeah, you may have to say, okay, we're going to risk uh, disrupting that clubhouse to see if there's someone else that can get us over the top. I don't think they should, but I understand why people would think that. But you can't ignore – you cannot take for granted the, the regular season records they are putting up. They are by far the best team of the past decade, and they just – you know, they can't catch a break in October. So let me okay because I, I happen to agree with you. I think you know the the the, the baseball is a game of you know long, giant sample sizes. Obviously not this year, but generally speaking, baseball's giant sample sizes, long term stuff. Keep a clubhouse together over the course of a year, which is much harder to do than it gets credit for, particularly in a place like LA, where you are attracting a lot of good talent and you have a lot of players who can play every day in a different context and all these other things. What Dave does is you know, not easy to do. What Frank Vogel did with the Lakers managing LeBron and AD is not easy to do. But the, the, the counter to that is you have to also be able to manage in the playoffs. If you can't get it right, you keep making the same mistakes or whatever it is over. It keeps not working for whatever reason. At some point, you have to try something different if you're – if your goal is to win a World Series, if your standard is to win a World Series, what right. would you say is the sort of the defense to people who say, well, he can't, he doesn't do it well enough in the playoffs, um, and therefore they should try to do something else? Well, first of all, while he has made what I mean, I think he's made mistakes, but I think some of them, 
things that other people, some of the mistakes, some of the things that are label mistakes were not mistakes. They were players on execute. Um, he's never really had a team that hit in the postseason. That's not Dave Roberts. You know, it, when Cody Bellinger in 2000, what was it? Was it 17 or 18 that he really had a terrible postseason? When a lot of them, actually. I mean, Bellinger's been up and down in the, in the yeah, playoffs. I mean, there's several. Of, I mean, uh, when these guys don't hit in the postseason, I'm so, in my opinion, that's on them. That has nothing to do with the manager. Um, he set them up for success. Um, maybe it has something to do with the organization. I mean, I, I think it's pretty noticeable that the Dodgers are striking out less this year, and I don't know if, if that's there's a causation or correlation there. But um, you – you, when I was watching game two on Tuesday, I had probably more faith in a comeback than I would have had a year before because I do believe in the Dodgers' ability more this year to put the bat on the ball. But um, there are other moves. I mean, Dave Roberts, because it's really about the pitching changes more than anything, and I think he's been criticized for some pitching changes that um, were the right moves, but they just didn't work. And, of course, then, if you, then you bring up the Houston Astros. I mean, Dave Roberts should have a World Series title right now. I mean, Clayton Kershaw and Brandon Morrow, uh, who were on fire that uh, that whole season in October, allowed combined to allow ten runs in that game, in Game Five. Now, that was bizarre at the time. It clearly seems obscene now. So now, yes. <laughs> and without that happening, Dave Roberts is a World Series champion. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I actually wanted to ask about Kershaw at some point during the show, so this is as good a time as any because it just came up. Like, I, I feel like the perception on Kershaw in some degree has grown more empathetic because people have grown to understand what happened definitely against the Astros to whatever degree you believe baseball's report with the Red Sox and what may or may not have been going on with them. And the Astros, if nothing else, have become – the heels of baseball, maybe even the heels of sports right now. And I think because of that, there's, there's been some of that, you know, there's, there's been some of that uh, disdain lifted off Kershaw at the same time, though, his only struggles in the playoffs have not been in those two years. And, you know, we saw last year, you know, against the nationals, he had a couple rough outings. What do you think that this opportunity means for Kershaw? And, and what do you think? Because tomorrow is one of those games. Like tomorrow yeah, is one I mean, of those defining if yeah. you don't win, you are letting people down again kind of games. This happens. But to answer your question, Andy, it means everything to him, I think, outside of his family. I think it means everything. Um, this happens every year. He, I mean, I've devoted what's left of my baseball writing career basically to chronicling Clayton Kershaw. And um, – he always has good starts in the postseason and he always has bad starts in the postseason. And usually the bad start is the last start for obvious reasons. He pitched superbly in the NL in the opening round, the wild card round, as they called it. He pitched really, I mean, he was pitching great until the, until he gave up back to back homers. He had, he was on his way to a, you six. can drop the F bombs. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. We're in there. Um, but essentially, he's been great this October. He's going to go out there tomorrow pitching with back spasms as a best-case scenario. And if he gives up five runs in six innings, 
it's going to be the same old stuff. Now, I agree with what you said, which is that I do think people have come become more empathetic, partly because of the Houston thing, partly just because um, they understand that Kershaw is not who he was, and so you can't expect him to dominate like he did. I've certainly broken my back trying on Twitter to tell people that I tweet out this list of his games every time he every time he goes and. He has started 27 games in the postseason, and he's been shelled five times in the first six innings. Now, that, again, that's too much nuance for most of Twitter. But, for example, the most famous start that he blew, which was when in NLDS game one in 2014, he gave up – he had a 6-2 lead and going to the seventh yeah. inning, gave right. up. Uh, sick charge with six runs Dodgers lose 10 to nine ultimately that's and that was really where things took off that was where people decided he was a postseason choker and and that start was criminal that he was still pitching long enough to allow those runs and it would never happen five years later it would never happen it would just literally it's impossible for that to happen now no one lets a pitcher go that long it was a hundred degrees at Dodger Stadium that and they just let him give up. Jay's right. They wouldn't. He was Manley was willing to sink or swim with this pitcher, even though he was dying. That scene in Argo. This is the best bad idea you have. I mean, <laughs> he was. I mean, for Mattingly, or at times with Dave Roberts, depending on the bullpen situation, which is for a lot of these seasons been pretty dicey. The idea of Kershaw clearly gassed was a justifiable decision over a lot of the bullpen options they had even looking at Kershaw going like I have no idea if he's got anything left I get the idea of trusting him in some of those scenarios over you know certain years of Pedro Baez you know I I get it plus nobody's got time for Pedro Baez in the most literal sense (laughs) (laughs) but it's not Kershaw's fault that his team didn't have a bullpen right that's where, that's where the disconnect is. Now we're out there, and if he gives them five innings, they'll be thrilled tomorrow. And I hope they get him out. It's like it's the thing because I, I think one of Roberts's failings in with Kershaw is I think sort of that tendency to go like one. And I don't have the catalog in my head, but like there's that moment of like, okay, gave up the home run. Let's let's get him out before before it gets bad. Let's get like. I feel like Dave wants Kershaw to have the moments, you know, the, like these sort of indelible moment. And, and I'm not saying it's conscious, but I feel like that's sort of part of it. Like he, you believe in somebody and you want somebody like Clayton Kershaw, who is like such a fundamentally decent human being and so committed to what he does and cares so deeply about what he does. Like you say, John, you want him to be successful. And sometimes that means putting him in places where he's actually less likely to be. Well, in the Milwaukee game, his first start of the playoffs this year, I mean, he was superb, but he hasn't pitched into the eighth inning all year and gives up. Um, I, I think it was a leadoff single. It may have been one out, but he gives up a hit. It's a three, nothing game. I mean, one more batter and he's facing the tie run and you, and anyone who's watched Kershaw for the past decade, is sitting there going, this is happening. I mean, and in my mind, you get him out. And they show Kurt, and they show um, 
whether it was Roberts or pitching coach Mark Pryor, was about to come out and they do a close-up on Kershaw, shaking his head and going, I got this, and, which is great drama. <laughs> foolish, foolish way to run a baseball team. If you think you need a reason to go get him, and they did have a reason to get him, and the, you go get him. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's the belief in the superhero Kershaw, which is – and he, he, he then wouldn't pick the guy off first, which is really just sort of like the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark move where the guy's wielding the sword and I'm just going to shoot him. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so maybe he knew that he was going to pick the guy off. Uh, he was that clairvoyant. But the point is, it's it's like you said, they are – Lord knows he's earned a lot of rope for what the career he's done, but it is, it's a tightrope walk, and you've got to be aware. And I do think there is a – there if there is a pattern both from Mattingly to Roberts, it is – slow to react to a pitcher in trouble and quick to cut your, um, take out a pitcher who's on a roll. Yes. Um, I, I, you, you pointed that out. Uh, I think after I, I, I it was game might've been game one. Um, but yeah, I think it was game one. Like, you know, the, the issue isn't who you bring in, it's who you took out. Like, you know, Gratterall, I guess got hit in the hand, but, uh, who was it that came in afterwards that, you know, through it was, it was it. Um, yeah. Really um, but like, I'm you know, pitch well could have started the next inning and he, and Roberts was asked about going to, um, you know, the, the next guy in the pen. He was like, yeah, he, uh, he went to Trinan and he's like, why did you do that? He's like, yeah, yeah we just, we felt good about Trinan. Like that's not an answer. Well, you know, they, you're right. In game one, uh, Victor Gonzalez. That's who it was. It was Gonzalez. Thank you. That's what it was. And they took him out because I think they had a plan of some sort. I mean, they don't – a vague notion that they wanted to be able to use him maybe more. But the thing is, the game – four pitches is basically you haven't even pitched yet. I mean, I'm not downplaying how important the pitches were. But take the gift that you've been given and use it because – if you need them tomorrow, you'll deal with that tomorrow. They certainly have that philosophy with Dustin May. Dustin May, they're happy to just blow out, use him for two innings, and then say, oh, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do with Dustin May now. Um, but with some reason, Victor Gonzalez, after four pitches, they yank him. And I'm not saying Victor Gonzalez wouldn't give up a hit to the first guy he faced in the next inning, and then you deal. But don't assume failure with a guy who's pitching well. Here's what I think is really interesting with Kershaw. And if the Dodgers end up winning the World Series this year, or if they just win a World Series with Kershaw on the roster, this will go away for him, even if he's not the reason that they win. Like, he, even if you look back on the run that they had towards a World Series and Kershaw was fine, you know, I mean, as long as they literally weren't having to make up for you know his collapses every single start nobody will care he just needs to have a world series ring so everybody stops talking about him as the guy who's preventing you from getting a world series i couldn't agree with you more um the fans care it's binary have we won a world series or not and if they have um the 30th guy on the roster, the guy, Terrence Gore, who hasn't, 
who hasn't appeared in a game uh, since the opening week of the season will be a hero. And if they lose, um, I mean, we're talking about Kershaw now. Ten years, we could be talking about Mookie Betts. Yeah, it's, it's not it's, having World Series with the Dodgers. And you got—I mean, I'm not a basketball guy anymore, but I heard LeBron talking about how if you haven't done, I saw that quote: "If you haven't done it in LA, you haven't done it." Uh, I, it's completely inaccurate reading of this town. Yeah. Oh, totally. Well, absolutely. Funny, like, and, and this is why—I mean, it's one of the things I find so compelling about Kershaw and find so compelling about sports is I think it was Andy McCullough uh, wrote uh, with The Athletic, like he he caught up to all the people who you know, kind of have played with Kershaw and have been around him and all this, and like and around these, these sort of playoff failings. And last year with the Nationals, uh, you know, when they beat him, and like it, was, it wasn't until after the game they saw that picture of him in the dugout, like that iconic picture now of just this crushed, human being it's like it almost took the like not the you know the fun out of it, it took the joy out of beating him like it's almost got to the point i think where opponents well, it, was former, it was daniel hudson it was a former yes. teammate of Kurt His teammate, right it, where where like opponents almost feel bad for beating him because everyone respects him so deeply and wants him to have success but obviously you know the people who are in the midst of it can't take it easy on the guy but like I don't think I've ever been around an athlete that more people wanted to see win. You know, all things being equal, than Kershaw, um, which in, in itself is kind of an amazing phenomenon. For my gen, I mean, for my generation, that's that's completely true. I mean, for my dad's generation, it would be Ernie Banks. You know, yeah. for, obviously Mike Trout, who we've talked about, is. I mean, if he could even get into a postseason, people would be, I think, dying for him to win. Steve Nash was like that. Yeah, but it's it's different with Trout though because, like you said, Trout hasn't been there. Right. And like it's Kershaw not only has been there, his team is there every freaking year. Like they are there, and which is impossible. That doesn't happen in sports. Certainly not in baseball. Not in baseball, yeah. Where where you have eleven opportunities or whatever to go out and win a World Series. You know, dumb math says even if Kershaw doesn't pitch well. They would have gotten lucky one year, and they would have won a World Series anyway, even if he wasn't good, and it's never happened. Yeah, I mean, there isn't a doubt that if you are speaking objectively that what Kershaw has done, not only as an individual, but in being the focal point of an of a team that has won eight straight division titles and by far more regular season games than any other, that is a more impressive achievement than winning any single World Series. There isn't a objectively that is just completely true unfortunately or for better or worse i should say we live in a culture where that's the objective achievement is not as important as the irrational achievement um the one silver lining about this year is this messed up year is that if they do win it this year this will have been the hardest playoff tournament in baseball history to have ever won so there won't be any doubt um, and like you said, I don't care if Kershaw pitches game, uh, dominates through the playoffs or, you know, basically is carried by his teammates. Um, they, you, those are, it, we have this weird thing where you see on someone's resume, how, how they call him a world champion regardless. 
regardless of what yeah. they contributed to it. Absolutely. I mean, he he's done so much already. Like his, his credentials as a pitcher are untouchable. I mean, he he may be the best pitcher I've ever seen. I mean, certainly that I've been able to see live on a regular basis. He's the best pitcher I've ever seen. It's not even close. In terms of pitchers that I've seen enough, like at an age where I was really able to understand what was going on, top three, you know, some, I mean, he, he's exceptional at what he does. I mean, he may be the greatest pitcher in Dodger history. And you know, John, because you literally wrote a book about the tradition of Andy, Andy Dodger pitchers. Well, but specifically on Dodgers pitchers, right? On Dodgers pitchers, brothers in arms, Koufax, Kershaw, and the Dodgers' extraordinary pitching tradition, a plug that I was going to get to before Brian stepped on it. But you understand what it means to potentially be the greatest pitcher in this franchise's history. Like that, that's exceptional. But this one thing is hanging over him. Like it, it still is hanging over him. This this idea that he is a detriment towards your team winning a championship. Like he's actually a reason, fair or not. I would like to think that um, as important, as much as it's a binary thing, like I said, you either did it or you didn't. I would like to think people realize that without him, the Dodgers aren't coming close to that level of success. And so even though he doesn't get credit for for the World Series that, that that hasn't happened yet. Hopefully, people are at least stopping short of blaming him, calling him the cause of the failure. Um, yeah. But he, um, let's just say this: if it doesn't pay off, and his con, you know, he could be a, he could be done with the Dodgers uh, tw- uh, twelve months from now. I hope oh, not. That's crazy. Um, hey. If it doesn't happen, it is it is going to be one poignant part of his story for me i tell you that um, but it's it's john it's one of these things that we do in sports that that is i i think is is weird um i i mean i understand why it happens this way particularly in the post jordan you know count the rings that's all that matters era clayton kershaw will be penalized far more for not winning a world series than mike trout will be for never getting to one that's, you know, that's really, you're right. I never thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. That's fascinating when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, LeBron James is punished for losing finals more than athletes are for losing in the first round. Like, they don't keep track of that stuff. But, like, you know, and that that's that's how we work. So, that, I mean, but, and I get it. Like, you know, we're, we're talking about Kershaw in the context of, like, nobody debates, is he a Hall of Famer? Is he, like, one of the great? But, like, if you are going to try to, Put people in that order. You know, is he the greatest that ever did it? Okay, then these things are important to it. But you, that pers- that it's just the perspective of it. That um, what we punish people for, what we praise them for, um, and and forgetting, kind of even discounting the they don't get there unless that guy's that good. Right. Well, it may be because just to play off your Trout Kershaw thing, ultimately you feel that a pitcher can control the game. Trout gets his four at-bats. Right. Kershaw, in theory, can go out there and pitch a shutout. And so it does rest on him the way it would rest on a Tom Brady, I guess, or um, a quarterback. Um, 
again, completely unfair, but that I wonder, I mean, there's two things going on. One is the pitcher versus the position player. And one is just, yeah, no one, ex- Mike Trout's on the angels and the angels are treading water for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, some of it is people are going to look at Mike Trout's rosters that he's, that he's had around him and saying that he hasn't gotten the help in the first place. And that, you know, Artie Moreno over the years has exposed himself as a pretty bad owner. And, you know, and, I mean, she saw this offseason when he basically called off a trade for Jock Peterson because he didn't want to wait while there was literally nothing else going on. Like, what was this possibly getting in the way of? Like, you got nothing but time, bro. Like, it's it's a middle of a pandemic. Like, take your time. But, you know, things like that, I think, actually help Mike Trout in terms of not taking as much heat over, hey, why why haven't you – been able to elevate your team to a certain point, even even though baseball is different than basketball in terms of control over the game. But like when you were talking about Kershaw's control over a game as a starting pitcher, you know, comparing it to someone like Tom Brady, I get the analogy, but at the same time, in, in some ways, it would be like if Tom Brady played every four games, you know, or every five games. You right. know, you know what I mean? Like you could you could argue that Mike Trout may have fewer direct opportunities. To control a game, but the flip side is he's in more games. So right. you know how how do you define those opportunities? And it, it speaks to the way baseball ultimately is a game of limited opportunity for yeah. any player to begin with. But right. you you could argue that Mike Trout has more of a chance to elevate his team. You could argue that Clayton Kershaw has more of a chance, and I think they're both legitimate imperfect arguments. So there's one person in your comments who wrote, sadly in LA, Kershaw will be remembered more of his shortcomings than his accomplishments. Now I'm gonna, I am gonna disagree with that because now, now yes, they want him to win the World Series, but even if he doesn't, five years from now, 10 years from now, if he's coming back to Dodger Stadium, that guy is gonna get his fiercest standing ovation as Koufax and Newcomb, by the way, Don Newcomb, who's a big part of my book, was had a disastrous postseason career and then he i mean and then he could not have been more adored once he was retired i mean everyone from you know jay johnstone he's you know the scrubs of the dodgers mickey hatcher all these guys they won world series but not a good examples but like in eric Karras, for example no one dislikes eric Karras because he didn't win a world series at a certain point i think even bitter fans basically come together and recognize greatness and the effort and just being a part of this chapter of your life as a fan. And I do think um, while there'll be disappointment, I hope it doesn't come to this, but while there, if there is disappointment over him not winning, ultimately we're going to cherish everything we have with Clayton Kershaw and we'll express that in that way. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so as well. I, I wanted to ask uh, before we get to the game, we got a game uh, specifically tailored for you, uh, John, tonight in your appearance. Who should be closing moving forward? My appearance? Your your appearance on the show, not, <laughs> not the actual appearance. Um, we have a variety of games that we, we schedule out based on what the person looks like when we finally see them. You know, that's dicey territory, I think, to be operating in. Particularly, in It is very dicey. Yeah. You you have the ability to eliminate uh, guests coming back a second time, depending on how the game goes. Right, you're you're really rolling the dice. I uh, I'm not someone who believes you need to have a closer 
strict closer. I like, frankly, the idea of playing matchups, but I will say that I have this pet theory slash dream. Uh, Dustin May got the first out of the season, and Dustin May gets the last out of the season. That's kind of cool. Oh, that's neat. So I'm I've been keeping that in my that's how, see like that's how we know you're a writer. Like only writers think of that kind of of, of line. Kind of- and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean like that's just like sort of being able to find sort of the poetry and the beauty of a sports season. But it's funny, like you know, because there's so much made now. Like before, you know, four or five years ago, the the analytics, a lot of it, you know, people were focusing on strikeout rates. So you want missing, you want to miss bats, you want to miss bats, you want to miss bats. And I think people are starting to see the value of putting the ball in play. Um, you know, strikeout rates are a little bit overrated, and some of these other things. You know, it's more like how the ball is being put in play and stuff like that. I do think you know there may be an exception with who's at the back of your bullpen. Like that might be a time where you don't want you know, if you can find a guy who can strike out two of the three batters that you're going to see in any given inning. That's probably preferable to the weirdness that can happen um, to to the ball being put in play. You know, the fluky. Ideally, 100 correct. But if you're you, know, you play the hand you're dealt. Um, if your guys can't locate. Um, they may be strikeout guys, but if they're walking guys in the process, then you're putting too much. Per- I mean, watching Joe Kelly come in after Jansen in oh. that against San Diego was just so difficult to watch. And yeah, the Dodgers have the advantage of having a, a very strong defense. I mean, they're, Turner may be a step slower than he is, and Seeger isn't Ozzie Smith, although he's capable, but they basically have a solid defense at every position, a defensive player in every position in the ninth inning. So if you, I want uh, – strikeouts are great. Not walking guys is better than strikeouts. If, you're, if, you're able, if you can locate your pitches, I will, I will get beat on a base hit. Yeah. But, well, I mean, that game, that game against San Diego was just – you, you can't be having that. You just can't be happy. <laughs> no. No, you cannot. No, but I mean, it is because like the the guy that I think most people would like really enjoy, like May, is I think a great option. But of the sort of the relief, it's I think it's it's Gratterall. But like I like the idea of using him, and like in the high leverage inning, you know, seventh inning situation, sixth innings, like you don't get to the ninth inning sometimes right. if you don't use your best guy in the seventh inning. And so, but the problem is then you're left with three or four guys that mostly make you go. Blah. Well, I mean, that's why it never made. If you don't want Jansen to be your closer, I mean, this year is different because this year he's really, I mean, people talked have talked about it for a couple of years, but this is really the time where it's become, became so critical that not even the Dodgers can ignore it anymore. Um, the idea of like, Oh, put Jansen in the seventh inning instead of the ninth, that'll solve things. Well, I mean, you can't get, be given up two or three runs in the seventh inning. It's like, of just, course. Um, you gotta, you, then it doesn't matter who your closer is. Right. You're going to be using them. Advantage of they have a 15 man staff because of the coronavirus expanded rosters. They got to make the best of that staff. And they got to, and if the best guy in a moment is 22 year old Victor Gonzalez, I don't care what he's done in the past. I don't, I don't care, frankly, if he's that he doesn't strike out 12 guys a game. Take your shot with him. Um, because he's been effective for whatever reason. Um, and 
you know, it doesn't have to be one guy only pitching the ninth. The guy could come if he's Victor Gonzalez is a durable guy. It doesn't have to be Victor Gonzalez, but if he's a guy who can pitch, who can give you two innings, let him give you two innings. Well, I mean, the good news is, and we should remind uh, everybody of this because you are, as we said from the top of the show, the uh, the eternal optimist. The Dodgers are coming off a crushing win tonight, so. You know, there we should be speaking from an optimistic place because they absolutely dropped a hammer on Atlanta tonight, and the hope is that is them regaining form and I guess sort of just getting back to the the version of themselves that we saw over the course of the season, where they were clearly the best team in baseball. So we'll see how that works tomorrow. And like you said, that start is everything for Kershaw. The game that we have set up uh, for people that are unaware, uh, John still writes the Dodger thoughts. Blog. It's a great Dodgers coverage, but you also do a lot of stuff on TV and movies. And you have two pieces that from about a year ago that I just absolutely adored and have bookmarked in, in part because I've been trying to think of a way I could steal the concept, but also just because I really, really like them. They're your favorite movies and favorite TV shows ever, A through Z. And what you've done is you've taken a list of movies, list of TV shows, and pick your favorite that starts with A, pick favorite that starts with B, C, D. And it's just, it's a great idea. And the, the choices that you have in there are awesome. I'm going to actually uh, cut and paste, put them into the chat itself. But I've taken that and I've created a game of trivia around the choice, some of the choices that you have um, in, these, uh, in these lists. And I'm going to play a game with you and Brian. Um, each of these, you'll get a chance to answer. Um, and we will go through starting with TV first arrest a, you chose arrested development. Who was the first member of the Bluth family cast on the show? A Michael Bluth, Jason Bateman, B Tobias Funke, uh, Funke, 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 uh, David Cross, C maybe Funke, uh, Aliyah Shawat. D. Lindsay Funke, uh, Portia de Rossi. I can't believe I'm butchering Funke so much. I've seen the show a zillion times. Brian goes first. Oh. You know, I, I spent a little time living in the British section of Orange County. I should know this. Um, <laughs> that is one of my single favorite, like, running gags of all time, the British section of Orange County, where they drive on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> um I, I will say it was David Cross. Is the question who appeared on screen first? No, who was cast, who was first? cast first? When they were casting who first. Cast first. Michael, Tobias, maybe, or Lindsay? Who was cast first? Well, I think David Cross is a good answer, because. but since you said it, I'm going to take the obvious one and go with Bateman. It's actually maybe. Aliyah really? Shawat, apologies if I'm mispronouncing her name. I was very surprised by that, but she was the first member of that cast uh, who, who got a part. Uh, next C, you chose Cheers. Ted Danson, Rhea Perlman, and George Went were the only cast members of Cheers to appear in every episode. Next closest was John Ratzenberger. How many total episodes was he not in? All but one, all but two, all but three, all but four. That's hard. John goes first. Well, he wasn't a regular when the show premiered, so I'm going to go high. I'm going to go all but four. Brian. I'll say three. 
all but one. According to IMDb, he was in every episode but one on Cheers. I was also surprised by that. Yeah. Uh, so zero zero right now. Freaks and geeks, <laughs> you're F. In the pilot episode, when we first see the freaks, what Van Halen song is playing immediately when when we see them? And the cradle will rock, running with the devil, everybody wants some, ain't talking about love. Brian goes first. I don't, I wish I should know this. I'll say running with the devil. Can you say him again? And the cradle will rock, running with the devil, everybody wants some, ain't talking about love. I'm going with everybody wants some, but this quiz is starting to irritate me. <laughs> well, it, it's running with the devil. Uh, nice. Point for yeah, Brian. It, it's, it's such a great choice. When you first see them under the bleachers smoking, it, it's awesome. It's just John, Don't think of it as a quiz. Think of it as a game, and it makes it more fun. Yes. Uh, graded. TV still, S for Seinfeld. How many times... Did Jerry say hello, Newman, over the course of the entire series? Over under 20. John goes first. I'm taking the under. I agree with it. I think it's a trick question. I think under. It is the under. 17 total times, according to IMDb, he said hello, Newman, over the course of the entire show. So, John, uh, it's now two to one, Brian. So you're catching up. Veep, your choice for V. Oh, I love that show. What was Selena Myers's maiden name? Malone, Benson, Eaton, or Bailey? Brian goes first. I, I think it's Eaton. John. I'm going with Benson. It's actually Eaton. <laughs> it's, it is actually Eaton. All the names, by the way, I chose from uh, one of the Utah Jazz's roster with uh, Mark <laughs> Eaton on it. Earl Bailey. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. Carl Malone. Carl Malone. And whoever Benson. I don't remember who Benson was, but was, I chose him. Yeah. Um, I will say, the, I still think actually that the the second to the episode where they're testifying before Congress might be the single funniest half hour of television ever produced. Oh. That that there's the second to last season, second to last episode, I think of the second to last season. And it is the if you haven't seen it, it I think it's the best half hour comedy example ever put together. It is so funny. Uh go go watch that if you haven't. Yeah, we've now moved into John's movies list. Um oh, A why? you chose why? Because so we got we got to finish wait. the game. <laughs> A Airplane was your choice. Which professional athlete was first offered the role of Roger Murdoch that went to Kareem? George Gervin, Earl Campbell, John McEnroe, or Pete Rose? John goes first. Oh, I didn't even know this was a thing. This was a thing. I can't picture anybody but Kareem in this role. Neither can I, but he was not the first choice, Pete apparently. Rose. I'm going with Pete Rose. Noted actor Pete Rose. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll say uh, Earl Campbell. It is actually Pete Rose. John oh. catching up three to two. My God, it would be thought of so differently <laughs> if it were Pete Rose. They can I share, really... can I share Earl Campbell trivia? Sure, yeah. please. Earl Campbell, when I was in seventh grade, filmed a skull commercial at my high school. At my <laughs> On our football team. <laughs> that is Skull. 
awesome. That's how old I am. It was a TV commercial for Skull, and we got his. I got his autograph. Wow! Like you know, this is a long time ago when a professional athlete is doing a commercial for tobacco. Like this is a long at a high school. <laughs> wow! <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, things that are wrong with that. A lot that's wrong with it. Um, <laughs> movie list I you chose. It's a Wonderful Life. In the movie, George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart's character, says he wants to go to college to learn to build things. In real life, Jimmy Stewart studied architecture in college. True or false? Brian goes first. True. Well, I will go with false. Oh, it's actually true. He not only studied architecture in college, he went to Princeton. Jimmy Stewart was an Ivy League man. If it doesn't work out in movies, I'll build buildings. <laughs> Wait, I was tied and now I'm behind again. Is that how this is? It's four to oh, two. Yeah, when I keep getting more oh, questions right. correct, I get more points and you fall behind. Right. That's how this works. Where are the people on Twitter telling me it's over? <laughs> the, 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 don't check your mentions right now. Somebody yeah. broke the, the 81 Dodgers. Are they mathematically eliminated yet? No, 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 no. You are not mathematically eliminated. I promise you. P, Princess Bride, which of these men was never considered for the role of Fessick, played by Andre the Giant? Lou Ferrigno, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, or Richard Keel, the, the Bond villain Jaws, he's also in The Longest Yard. Which of them was never considered for Fezzik? John goes first. Uh, Kareem, uh, the choices were Kareem, Keel, uh, Arnold and Lou Ferrigno. Arnold Schwarzenegger was a choice? He is a choice, yes. Uh, I'm going with him. And I believe the answer is Pete Rose. <laughs> <laughs> very, very different spin. I, I I think the answer is Lou Ferrigno. Nobody would consider Lou Ferrigno for that. Hey, can I switch? No. You... <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, you're Ferrigno, that actually nice. is. Don't worry, John. We still got you covered. You know who actually apparently did Lou Ferrigno in that role because everybody will just think the Incredible Hulk. You know who actually uh, was he auditioned for it? Believe it or not, Liam Neeson, and he was told that he was too short at six four, like he wasn't big enough for the role. Well, I mean, look who they cast. That's yeah. track. I mean, both parts of that story track that like they thought about it, but then we're like, no. R, Raising Arizona, one of my all-time favorite movies. Nicolas Cage's character is H.I. McDonough. What does the H stand for? Horatio, Herbert, Helmsley, it's never stated. Brian goes first. Horatio. Herbert. It is Herbert. All right, Ooh. you're getting back in there. The I, however, is, I believe, never stated in the movie. But it is Herbert. So He signs the letter at Herbert. Please. Yes. Letter to yes, yes, he does. Oh, nice pull, John. Shawshank Redemption, your S. Which of Tim Robbins or Morgan Freeman got an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor for Shawshank Redemption? Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, both or neither? John goes first. Did you specify the category? Is it lead best actor? Best actor, the only best actor? Yes, I am saying. I'm going to say Tim Robbins only. Neither. The answer is Morgan Freeman. 
Morgan Freeman got nominated. He also got nominated for a Golden Globe. Uh, both, however, were nominated for Best Male Actor in the SAG Awards. Nominated from that movie, Pete Rose. That's <laughs> two more. W. Uh, waiting for Guffman. During the audition scenes, which Mar Martin Scorsese movie does an actor do a monologue from? Goodfellas, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Cape Fear. Brian goes first. I think it's Taxi Driver. Um, I need this one. Yes, I think you I do. Um, Raging Bull. It is Raging Bull. Oh, the, that was my second choice. It's the, did you fuck my wife? <laughs> <laughs> he does it. He does it solo, and the look on Christopher Guest's face <laughs> is so amazing. So, last question: five to four, but. John, as luck would have it, just totally random. The last question is worth two points. So you have the opportunity to win. X, you chose Xanadu, and X is tough unless you really love the X-Men series. It's difficult. Which, which of the Gibb brothers was considered for the lead role opposite Olivia Newton-John? Barry Gibb, Maurice Gibb, Robin Gibb, or Andy Gibb? Uh, John O'Brien goes first. I, think I have to go first, right? Okay. Yeah, you go first. It's not Maurice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maurice Gibb was never considered for anything. Um, he's like the, the, the Plumley brother nobody likes. Um, I think that's all of them. Well, no, I mean, some of them do. <laughs> Pete Rose Gibb. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I think at the time I will say Barry because I believe at the time Barry was considered the the sexiest and the the biggest of these stars. Uh, I'm going with Sean Cassidy. <laughs> you're going. You're going. You're an order off the menu. <laughs> well, first of all, okay, it's Barry or Andy, and my gut was with Andy, and mathematically, I need to go with Andy. Is that your final answer? I'm going with Andy. You have the correct answer. It is Andy Gibb. He was considered for the role that eventually went to Michael Beck. John Weissman with the comeback, 6-5, wins the game. Wins the game. Yeah. You know what I've discovered in this process, in this like seven minutes that we spent playing this game? I think John's a little more competitive <laughs> than I realized. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's, it, uh, it's that I hold these movies so dearly except for xanadu by the way <laughs> was the best of a i haven't seen i'm gonna confess to you i've never seen an x-men movie you know what there are a few of them that are good actually they're, they're i'm sure that are saying you have it you're really out of we, we have, our family is not a superhero movie family so we never go so i didn't have i i think i had one other x option that i had seen and i went with xanadu um, I learned by the way, so dearly that it just hurts not to be able to answer. I mean, the freaks, you killed me on freaks and geeks. Uh, two, two other <laughs> John, like MJ, I take it personal. Weissman says the kid from NYC. Two more factoids I learned about Xanadu before we let you go uh, through researching this. One, Peter Frampton had been a choice from Olivia Newton John for the lead, but the studio balked because he'd been at the forefront of the savage Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club band movie. Um, so they, they didn't feel confident about Peter Frampton. Also, according to IMDb, Gene Kelly 
took the lead role opposite Olivia Newton-John because the filming location was close to his house in Beverly Hills. <laughs> it's the final, it's Gene Kelly's final movie. I went out on a high note. <laughs> I think that's pretty much the movie he's remembered for. <laughs> was Gene Kelly in other movies? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I mean, know. you know, there I'm was not sure. There was something on this that took place on a street. <laughs> it might have been raining. Yeah, might have been. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, John Weissman. Great, great voice on the Dodgers. You can follow him at John Weissman. Uh, go buy his books. 100 Things Dodgers Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, Brothers in Arms, uh, the Kofax and Kershaw book, and just all of this stuff that we were talking about. You know, you can find you know some of this in, in the stuff. He's a great writer, um, and you will, you will be a better person for having read these books, uh, particularly if you're a baseball fan and a Dodgers fan. Thanks so much for the time, and it's good to see you. It's been a while. I had so much fun. This was so good. Awesome, man. We we were really happy you were able to do this and we could catch up, man. Uh, yeah. This was great. Later this week, tomorrow, we'll do some NFL with Lindsey Theory from ESPN. Covers the Rams and the NFL for them. Friday is going to be a lot of fun. Gustavo Ariano from the LA Times. We're going to talk about voting and stuff in Orange County and the gigantic tortilla tournament that he's uh, running with KCRW over the weekend. The finals are coming up this weekend. Where Andy and I are going to go out. He told us where to get the tortillas. We're going to eat some tortillas. We're going to learn what makes a proper tortilla. Um, that's going to be fun. And then Monday, Mirren Fader from Bleach Report. Great, great young writer. She's an awesome writer. feature writer. So that'll be a fun interview as well. John, great to see you. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. And we will see everybody tomorrow night. Donkey Niederland. <laughs>